We'll now be reading our scripture on which the teaching is based. Today we'll be reading about the triumphant entry, Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here shortly. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied in a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there said, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Um, well, happy Palm Sunday. It's lovely to see you all here. Those of you who have been coming for a while know that we've been looking at the Gospel of Mark. Uh, the New Testament begins with four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, which are the record of the disciples and what they remembered about Jesus, what he said, what he did, how he interacted with people. And Mark is the record of... Uh, the Apostle Peter, the leader of the disciples, the one on which Christ said he was, built his church. It's called Mark because it was almost certainly written by John Mark, who was a follower of Peter uh, when the church began. And we've jumped forward. Uh, as we worked our way through the Gospel of Mark, we came to the middle point last week, uh, chapter 8. There are 16 chapters in Mark. And we saw there that in chapter 8, Jesus uh, asked the disciples who he is. Who do you think that I am? And Peter finally confesses that Jesus is the Messiah, that he's the promised one, the anointed one from God who is going to restore Israel and restore the peoples of the world. And from that point, Jesus turns and go straight to Jerusalem. That statement of faith is the foundation on which the disciples are going to build the church. And so the whole initial part of the gospel, Jesus gathering the disciples, training them, helping them understand who he is, equipping them, reaches its fulfillment there. And then Jesus goes to Jerusalem and, of course, to the cross. So we've jumped ahead to chapter 11 here where Jesus arrives at Jerusalem. We're going to go back after Easter. And as you read this, as you think about this, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry, and Easter, the cross, Jesus' death, his resurrection, these are linked. If you recall, Jesus is explaining himself to the disciples and to us and to the world through a series of acts that have their own meaning, his healings and his teachings, 
but also help us interpret who he is. And so as we read through that, as we read through these passages, we should be looking at Palm Sunday and this text as a way for us to interpret who Jesus is and what the cross was all about. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, they finally got there. To understand what's happening here, you have to know something about the um, geography of Israel. Jerusalem is on top of a mountain. And to get to it, you have to ascend. And you have to ascend up through Bethany and Bethpage to get to Mount Olives, which is a peak right next to Jerusalem. And Bethany, a small village right at the, the base of Mount, uh, the mountain where Jerusalem is, that's where Mary, Martha, and their brother Lazarus lived. That's where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. So going to Jerusalem requires passing through this town where everyone would have been aware that Jesus had performed this extraordinary miracle. And so this journey from death at the base of the mountain to Jerusalem is an ascent from death to Jerusalem and the temple and the relationship with God. It's a symbolic journey. Psalm 48. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God. His holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, the city of the great king. And so Jerusalem, and particularly the temple at its center, was the meeting place between God and Israel. It is where Israel went to celebrate. It's where Israel went to worship. It's where Israel went to sacrifice to restore and maintain their relationship with their God. It was a place of meeting. It was a place, an elevated place where God and man came together. And it was very elaborate. If you read in the New Testament, uh, the, Hebrew, the book of Hebrews, it is an explanation of everything that Israel's ceremonial law and its temple and its tabernacle and the Ark of the Covenant, it explains everything that they mean. And it describes the temple. In the first room with a lampstand and the table with its consecrated bread, this was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place. In Hebrew, holy, 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 which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered Ark of the Covenant. This Ark contained the gold jar of manna. This is the manna that God gave to Israel when it was journeying through the desert. Aaron's staff that had budded and the stone tablets of the covenant. This is the covenant that God, the Ten Commandments, that God gave to Israel at Mount Sinai. Above the ark were the cherubim of the glory, overshowing the atonement cover. 
So this is the place of atonement, the most holy place in Israel, the holy sanctuary. You know, the temple was holy, and then you had to go through a curtain to get to the holy place, and then you went to the holy, holy, holy place. That's where the ark was, and that's where the relationship with Israel that God had made was commemorated with all the symbols that God had given to Israel on their journey. So this is a special place, the most special place. And the entire purpose of the sacrificial law, Jerusalem, the temple, the priesthood, all the structures that made, and institutions that made Israel, they are all brought together in Jerusalem. Holy means set apart, that is separated. Holy people, holy things, holy places are set apart for God. So it's the place that is distinct from the mundane, ordinary world that we live in. It is the place that you go to, set apart for God, so that you can have a relationship with God. Outside was the, uh, the courtyards of the temple. You went through a curtain to sacrifice, to offer sacrifices. That was the holy place. The priesthood, the holy people of God, were there taking care of the sacrificers. And then the high priest, the most holy, once a year, was allowed to go into the Holy of Holies, where the ark was. And it was considered such a dangerous thing to do that there were elaborate preparations before the high priest even went there, and they would tie a rope to him in case he died, struck down by God's holiness, so that they could pull him out without having to go in there themselves. So Jesus is going to the very center of things here. He's been on the outskirts. We've seen him in the north of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. We've seen him by himself in the desert. We've seen him gather disciples. We've seen him begin to make a name for himself in Israel. And now he's come to the very center, to the meeting place of God and man. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and will send it back here shortly. There are no accidents in this journey that Jesus is making. Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. Jesus understands exactly what is happening. He knows exactly where the cult is going to be, and he knows exactly what the disciples have to say. Jesus doesn't wing anything. This is a deliberate journey that Jesus controls and understands. At the very beginning of the Bible, in Genesis, we read this. The scepter will not depart from Judah. The scepter is the sign of royal authority. Nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch, and he will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. 
That's from Jacob, at least 2,000 years before Jesus. Already, these great um, procedures, this great story, this narrative is beginning 2,000 years before, and Jesus is his fulfillment. 500 years before, in Zechariah, we read this. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Righteous and victorious, but also lowly. This is a different kind of king, predicted 500 years before Jesus, and Jesus is fulfilling that. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing, untying that colt? They answered, as Jesus had told them, and people let them go. The Lord needs it. First request of Jerusalem, the imperial center of things. And this is the first time Jesus begins to be accepted. They let him have it because he's the Lord. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Jesus rides on a donkey. Actually, a young donkey, a foal. Jesus is a paradoxical mixture. He is king, the king returning to the center of power, but he doesn't come on a war horse. He doesn't come at the head of an army. He comes on a donkey, not an animal of war like a a great uh, war horse or a chariot, but something that a humble person would use, a peasant, a pilgrim, a simple traveler. And Jesus' apparent opposites are combined, and he's revealing a different kind of power, a different kind of kingship. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. We know from the other Gospels that they were palm branches, the palms that some of you were given as you entered, hopefully. Why were they doing that? Well, this actually was a little bit of corruption of Jewish culture. The palm was a Roman symbol. It was in celebration of the god Nike, the winner, the victor, the god of victory in war. And when uh, a great uh, Caesar or a leader of Rome's legions returned to Rome, they would wave the palms to celebrate the victory. So you can see that Jerusalem had picked this up, and they were anticipating that the Messiah, the king, would be a warrior. Remember, they were, the Jewish people were under the, um, being oppressed by Rome. They were occupied by Roman legions. They thought God would save them by driving out the Roman legions in battle. And so they see Jesus, even though he's on a donkey here, as the returning warrior king who's going to save God's people. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. 
Hosanna means God save him. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord is a quote from Psalm 118, a messianic psalm that celebrates and prophesies and promises that God will send a Messiah. Blessed is the coming kingdom of a father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. David was the great king who founded Jerusalem, who drove out the enemies of God's people. And so what we see here is the culmination, the growth of Jesus' reputation. We saw him at the beginning of Mark's gospel, alone in the desert, being tempted by the devil, weak, alone, hungry, thirsty, nothing and nobody around him. And then he gathers his disciples, just ordinary, illiterate fishermen, ordinary peasant people. He begins to grow a ministry as he heals, as he teaches the countryside around Galilee, come out into the wilderness to listen to him. And now here he is at the center of Jerusalem, being acknowledged as the Messiah and the King. By the way, as a side, you know, most of you are American. I don't think that you, how can I say this in a polite way? I grew up with a queen. I'm, I grew up English. And what I've learned coming to America is the whole idea of kings and queens is hopelessly old-fashioned and quaint. Uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't resonate in America. Um, and I know why. I became an American citizen, and it felt very grown up to stand up and say what I believe and to pledge before a federal drudge that I would defend the Constitution of the United States, that I would bear arms if required to defend that Constitution. It felt very grown up and modern and deliberate and adult, whereas kings and queens just seem childish. But one thing that you have to remember about the idea of kingship, kings, at least <clears throat> good kings, fought and took care of their people. A constitution will let free people live together, but you have to be free. A constitution is just a piece of paper. It cannot set you free when you're in chains. It can't fight for you when you're oppressed. It can't rescue you when you're lost. It is a statement of ideals of a free people, but by itself, it can't do anything. It can't save you. You can love a constitution, but it can't love you back. You can defend a constitution, but it won't defend you. And that's the difference. A good king will defend you. And Jesus is the good king. And what does that mean? He is demonstrating here that he is the returning king, come to set the, his people free. And a good king fights the fights that ordinary people cannot fight. A good king defeats the enemy outside the gate, protects his people, goes to find you when you're lost, brings you home, creates a safe place. It's why when people say, what would Jesus do? They miss the point. 
Jesus is not an example, something that we can emulate and follow. Jesus is a king. Jesus is a hero. Jesus is the one that fights the fights that we cannot fight. We just have to, in faith, follow. He does the fighting for us. But when, then we get this strange anticlimactic ending here. He's come up the hill from death to life. He's coming to the center of Jerusalem. He's been acclaimed as the king. And what happens? Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. It's like a tourist. Runs up the hill, looks around, it's late, he leaves. What on earth is happening here? How can this be the climax of the returning Messiah who is going to set his people free? Well, remember again, Jesus is here. He's teaching us something. There are no accidents. Everything he does has meaning and purpose. And what is Palm Sunday preparing us for? It's preparing us for Easter. It's preparing us for the cross. It's preparing us for Jesus' resurrection and new life. So the king has returned, yes. And he goes into the temple courts, yes, like anybody else. Why didn't he go into the temple, the holy place? After all, Jesus is holy. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The temple is his home. Why didn't he enter? Why did he stay in the courts outside? Because if he had gone in there, he would have entered alone. His disciples, who will become the Christian church, who will become us, cannot follow him into the holy place because we're not holy. The whole point of Jesus coming into the world and becoming one of us was he came to restore our relationship with the holy God. How is he going to do that? He's going to have to go back down the hill to Bethany, the city where he raised Lazarus from the death with the twelve before he can take them into the holy place. Now, there are a lot of ideas I've just presented to you. Let me just share you a story that helped me think about this. This is, I don't know where I heard this, a long, long time ago. It's a fairy story. Imagine, once upon a time, there's a country that has just undergone a terrible civil war because of the cruelty and corruption of its leaders. And there's been terrible bloodshed and violence and pain and suffering. Eventually, everybody is worn out, exhausted. And they make an agreement, a truce. They can't agree on a leader, so they say, let's bring back the son of the old king. We'll make him the new king. He promises that he will be just, an impartial ruler, that he will administer justice equally and freely to everyone. And it ends the war. It ends the struggle. 
But nobody is happy because there's no trust. Everyone is nervously watching their neighbor. Everybody is nervously watching the sun. Everyone is afraid that he's going to slip into the old ways, that violence is going to come from their neighbors, that there's going to be bloodshed. Nobody can relax. And then a terrible day comes. One of the corruptions of his father was that he would steal money from the treasury as he had need. He would just take whatever he wanted. And his son promises that he'll never do that again, and anybody who does do that will be punished. But it is discovered that money is missing. Someone has been raiding the treasury again. It seems like the old ways have come back. And everyone calls for an investigation. And to the, to the delight of his enemies and the horror of his friends, it is discovered that it is the prince's mother, the wife of the old king, who has continued her, her old habits and has casually used the treasury like a private vault, like a private wallet, taking the country's money for her own use. And now the enemies of the new king know that they've got him. If he punishes her, if he punishes her as he has promised, then he will be revealed as a monster, someone who would put his position ahead of his love for his mother, who would punish his own mother to stay king. He'd be revealed as a cruel, calculating monster. But if he forgives her, if he doesn't punish her, then the whole idea of impartial justice, justice equal to everyone, will be revealed as a farce. Justice or love, he's going to have to choose. can do both, and everybody waits to see what he's going to do. So the day comes, everyone's gathered in the main square, and the punishment is a public whipping. There's a whipping post in the middle of the square. Everybody gathers to see what he's going to say. Everyone falls silent. And he proclaims the punishment. A hundred lashes for his mother. She starts crying, looks desolate. Everyone around is just amazed. How could he be such a monster? But then the son takes off his robe, his robe of power, and he himself goes into the market and stands at the whipping post and says, I will take the whipping. Carry out the sentence. Justice and love together in one king. He has upheld the law. The sentence is carried out. It is demonstrated love. The sentence is carried out on him in the place of his mother. Through his wounds and suffering is revealed his strength and his courage as a king, but also his gentleness and his love for his mother. I think that's a great picture of what Jesus did when he went to the cross. He is the king who restores authority and law, who provides a safe place for everyone equally, 
But he is also a gentle king who is willing to be gracious, who doesn't demand that his people suffer on his behalf, who doesn't require his people to fight his battles, but rather he will fight their battles. That's why Jesus went to the cross. That's what Easter is all about. The justice of God's law, the love and graciousness of God revealed in Jesus Christ, his son. These two impossible opposites put together and the true nature of God revealed. That's what Easter is all about. That's why next Sunday we are going to celebrate because this humble, gentle, courageous king is revealed on the cross. And we, as his followers, can claim that truth and also claim that love. That's why we worship him. That's why we follow him. That's why he's our hero. That's why he's not an example, but a gentle warrior king that fights our battles for us. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that in Christ you reveal yourself. You are awesome, Lord. You are terrifying, and yet you're also gentle, humble, gracious. Lord, help us to worship you. Help us to recognize what it means to live in fear of you, a fear of awe, a fear of a generosity we can hardly comprehend. Lord, help us to be your people, your church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, before the announcements, we had an offering. Uh, that was an offering.